You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. All right, we're journeying through the Psalms, and we've made it to Psalm 22. Psalm 22, uh, one of my favorite Psalms in the 150 chapters of the Psalms, and Psalm 22 is wonderful and glorious. Uh, I've titled the teaching tonight, When I Survey, which is uh, a play off the title of one of my favorite hymns, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, because this this psalm, uh, written by David about a thousand years before Jesus walked on the earth, so clearly speaks of the crucifixion. It's going to, to help us to survey the wondrous cross. So we're going to see that as we work our way through. So let's look at Psalm 22 together, and I want to read some verses, and then we will uh, pray and uh, jump into our study. Psalm 22, to the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn. Uh, scholars believe that is the, the, the title, a musical title, a tune that people in this day and time would have been aware of. So they knew to sing to this tune. And it's a Psalm of David. Look how it starts. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I'm a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan, Surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Let's pray together. Father, I do pray that you draw near to us in this moment. Grant us the gift of um, spiritual illumination, that we would see your word clearly and understand it clearly and respond to it, Lord, with passion and resolve. Speak to us, Lord, through your word. And we ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Kendall easily reminds us that the Psalms have a, a theme that run throughout them. God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. And so the Psalms remind us over and over again that no matter the situation, 
no matter the circumstance, no matter the emotional uh, reality you are living in, God is worthy of your worship and God is worthy of your trust. And John Piper writes, the Psalms are songs, they are poems, they are written to awaken and express and shape the emotional life of God's people. Poetry and singing exist because God made us with emotions, not just thoughts. Our emotions are massively important, and that's why we connect with the Psalms at such a a, a a deep level because we resonate with the different emotions that we find in the Psalms and the way the psalmists deal with their emotions. And we've made it to Psalm 22. And if, if you're classifying this Psalm, and there are different classifications of Psalms or different groupings of Psalms, you would classify this as a messianic Psalm. It's a Psalm that points forward to the Messiah. And in very, very uh, clear ways. As I told you earlier, this is a psalm about, specifically about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And it makes it remarkable that, again, these words were written a thousand years before Jesus walked upon the earth, but the Holy Spirit was breathing through David to write down these words that uh, prophesied what the cross would be about for our Messiah, King Jesus. Charles Spurgeon says it like this, Before us, we have a description both of the darkness and of the glory of the cross, the sufferings of Christ and the glory which shall follow. Oh, for grace to draw near and see this great sight. We should read reverently, putting off our shoes from off our feet, as Moses did at the burning bush. For if there be holy ground anywhere in Scripture, it is in this psalm. And Derek Kidner says it in a much more simplified manner. No Christian can read this, read Psalm 22, without being vividly confronted with the crucifixion. If you, if you read this psalm, you, it's, it's as if you are standing at the foot of the cross, seeing Jesus crucified. It is that clear. It is that powerful. Now, I want to answer this question and then uh, look at some different aspects of this psalm. But here's the question that I want to pose and then answer. How do we know this is a messianic psalm? How do we know this psalm is about Jesus? How do we know this psalm is about uh, the crucifixion specifically? Let me show you some verses. I have them there in your notes. But start with verse 1. This is the most easily recognizable connection to the cross, where David starts out saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? These are the words that Jesus voiced on the cross. He was hanging on the cross. And if you know the background, he hung on the cross for six hours from nine in the morning to three in the afternoon. Uh, after the, the first three hours, the sky turned dark and Jesus was bearing the sins of the world, taking the wrath of God in our place. And at that dark moment in human history, Jesus, who feels the forsakenness of the Father because the Father was pouring out the wrath we deserve, Jesus became sin for us and took our sin and guilt and shame. And in that moment, Jesus felt the forsakenness, the distance between him and the Father who turned his back to Jesus who became sin. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus, who knew his Bible, takes these words from Psalm 22 and makes them his own. 
and he uses these words to express the, the emotional anguish he felt as he became sin for us and the Father turned his face away from the one who took our sin and poured out his wrath on his Son. And so Jesus takes these words and expresses them. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, another little interesting insight about this. Um, in Jesus' day, the Psalms were not numbered the way they are numbered in our Bibles today. All right? So if you wanted to, to call attention to a certain Psalm, you would say the first line. So, for example, if I wanted you to read Psalm 23, I would say, hey, read, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And that's your indicator. I'm talking about what we know as the 23rd Psalm. When Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's, it's like Jesus is saying, because the, the, the Hebrew Bible scholars who were around at that time would have understood he was saying what we know as Psalm 22. Psalm 22. He, he was calling attention to this Psalm. And can you imagine... Being there at that moment, seeing Jesus crucified, hearing him quote these words, then you go back and read Psalm 22, written a thousand years before this moment in history, and seeing how those words pointed to what Jesus was enduring. It, remarkable. So Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He quotes those words in Matthew 27, verse 46. Look in verse 7. How do we know this is a messianic psalm? All who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they're saying. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. Hold your place, but look over in Matthew 27, verse 39. Matthew 27, verse 39. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. And so this derision, this mocking of Jesus was prophesied in Psalm 22, verse 7. They says they wag their heads at him. They are, they are mocking him, uh, deriding him, and it speaks of that in Psalm 22. Look in verse 8 of Psalm 22. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Look in Matthew 27, verse 43. The, the people, they're bearing witness. The chief priests, the scribes, and elders say, He trusts in God. Let God deliver him. For if he desires him, for he said, I am the Son of God. So they repeat uh, the words from Psalm 22. Uh, very, close, uh, very close to what the original words were in Psalm 22, but the same idea. He says he belongs to God. Let God deliver him. Again, mocking Jesus as he was on the cross. Look in Psalm 22, verse 16. Psalm 22, verse 16. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. Look in Matthew 27, verse 35. It says, when they had... Um, I'm sorry, verse 18. I count all my bones, Psalm 22. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, as, and for my clothing they cast lots. Look in uh, uh, Matthew 27, Verse 43, 27 verse 43, it says, where, I mean, I'm sorry, 27, 35, I'm sorry, I'm glad, I was looking, I said, that's not the right verse. 27, 35, I'm glad, I was just saying if you are paying attention, I'm glad you are. All right, 27, 35, it says, when they crucified him, they divided his garments among them by what? 
casting lots, just like it said over in uh, Psalm 22, verse uh, 18. And then look in verse 22 of Psalm 22. Verse 22 of Psalm 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. Hold your place, but look over in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. We'll see these words again. New Testament book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 12. Look what the Bible says. That's why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. That that phrase is applied to Jesus, talking about those who would come to follow him and know God as Father the way he knew God as Father. So all of these verses connect from Psalm 22 to the New Testament, and they so clearly speak of Jesus and his crucifixion. Uh, This is a messianic psalm. Now, keeping all that in mind, Let's look at what we actually see in this psalm. First of all, we see the experience of the cross. The experience of the cross. And there are really two things here. First of all, we see great sorrow. Great sorrow. Starting there in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Remember... Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. But there was silence from heaven, right? There was no other way. For Jesus to be a Savior, he had to drink the cup of God's wrath in our place. So he's on the cross. God is not not saving him from that moment. He has to drink the cup of God's wrath in order to provide salvation for us. Warren Wiersbe says, When he spoke these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He had been engaged in a mysterious transaction with the Father, dying for the sins of the world. On the cross, Jesus was made sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21, and made a curse, Galatians 3.13, for us. In some inexplicable way, he experienced what condemned lost sinners experience away from the presence of the Lord. However, note that both David and Jesus called him my God, making it clear that they still knew and trusted God. The Father. So these words express the the emotional anguish Jesus felt on the cross as he took our sin and felt the forsakenness of the Father as he died in our place. And then in verses 14 through 18, there is not just sorrow, but suffering. Look in verse 14. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. Uh, scholars believe that refers to a, a common um, issue when people were crucified. Uh, when, when, when people were crucified in, in the time of the Roman Empire, it was customary that they would, they would uh, nail their hands to a crossbeam and then nail their feet to the, the vertical piece. They would nail them to the cross and they would lift the cross up with the person nailed to it and drop it down in a hole where it would sit. That that placing of the cross into the hole was sometimes so jarring, people's bones would actually come out of joint. And this, this indicates uh, that's what Jesus experienced on the cross, suffering. And it says there in verse, uh, verse 15, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, like a, like a piece of pottery, piece of broken pottery. 
my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. You know, he was thirsty. One of his seven sayings from the cross was, what? I thirst. I thirst. I'm thirsty. He was hanging there, uh, slowly suffocating as he died on that cross. And he mentions the, the, the Roman soldiers. Dogs encompass me. He calls them in this psalm, or they're called in this psalm, dogs and bulls and lions. And, and every one of those pictures speaks of them being ravenous and destructive Dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Now, here's what's interesting about this phrase, they have pierced my hands and feet. When when David wrote these words a thousand years before Jesus was actually crucified, crucifixion was not a thing. It was not an it was not a, a way that humanity had conceived of to kill someone. It was not a way that someone would would execute the death penalty yet. We don't see crucifixion until farther down the road, and then the Romans took crucifixion and, and really uh, perfected it and made it as 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 grisly and as uh, painful as they possibly could. They were they were master executors and they were master crucifiers. And it's interesting that this verse speaks of hands and feet being pierced, and crucifixion didn't even exist. Think about that thousand years. Not only is this psalm telling us that the Messiah is going to suffer, is going to die, it tells us how it would happen. I mean, that is amazing, the specificity of this psalm. Then in verse 17, I count all my bones, they stare and gloat over me, they divide my garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots. Very clearly speaking of the crucifixion scene, when the Roman soldiers that we read earlier in Matthew 27 were gambling over the garments that Jesus wore. And so this speaks of the physical suffering, the physical toll that Jesus uh, endured at the cross. Now remember, the cross happened after Jesus had already undergone extensive suffering. Remember, Pilate, before he condemned him to die, had Jesus flogged with a cat of nine tails and had his back laid open with a with a, a whip with pieces of metal and glass and bone on the end. And a Roman soldier trained in the cruel arts would, would lay that whip across the back of the one being punished, in this case, Jesus, and his back, his, his, the flesh of his back was pulled away, ripped away. He was already bloody and exhausted. In fact, when he had to carry his cross to Golgotha, what happened? He was so weakened by the flogging, he fell under the weight of the cross. They had to enlist Simon the Cyrene to help him carry the cross to the top of Golgotha. And so Jesus had gone through immense, immense punishment and suffering up to the crucifixion. Then he was nailed to the cross, and then he hung there from 9 in the morning to 3 in the afternoon. And here's how crucifixion killed you. They would put, uh, they would put nails in really kind of where your hand and your wrist met to try to inflict maximum pain because that's where all your nerves come together right there. And you would hang there. Uh, uh, you'd have a, a nail through your kind of your ankle joint to hold your feet to the cross. You'd have both hands nailed to the cross. And every time you wanted to breathe, you had to pull up on those nails and push up on the nails through your feet just to take a breath. And then you'd slump back down. Then you'd pull up to breathe and then slumped back down. And over time, a crucified person became weaker and weaker and weaker till they were no longer able to pull themselves up. And then most of them died by suffocation. And Jesus hung there on this cross from, from nine in the morning 
to three in the afternoon, immense physical suffering, immense spiritual suffering as he became a curse for us. And remember what the Bible says about the crucifixion. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated or God proved his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. As we stand at the foot of the cross, reading this psalm, as we see our Savior crucified, as we survey the wondrous cross, we must be reminded of this this amazing display of God's love. He, he, He encountered that and endured that for you and for me. The Bible says he died for the sins of the world. Wow. And so Jesus experienced this sorrow and this suffering for you and for me. And and just a quick reminder, and most of you know this, but Jesus didn't have to experience this. In fact, when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, Peter drew his sword and cut off the high priest's servant's ear, and Jesus healed the, the man's ear. And Jesus said something very interesting to Peter. He said, put away your sword. Don't you understand, I could call 12 legions of angels, that's 72,000. I could call 72,000 angels like that? I don't, I don't have to go through this. Man's not in control. Pilate's not calling the shots. The high priest is not calling the shots. The temple police are not calling the shots. The Pharisees and Sadducees are not calling the shots. Sanhedrin's not calling the shots. I am laying my life down. It says in John 10, of my own initiative... I'm choosing to die. And so that is the experience of the cross, sorrow and suffering. But then we see the effect of the cross, the effect of the cross. If you look there in your notes, what did Jesus bring about by dying on the cross in our place? The cross and the subsequent resurrection allowed God to win the ultimate victory. Now look what it says back in Psalm 22, verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, may my help come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of lion. You've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. So here's what David writes that prophetically is applied to Jesus on the cross. Jesus understands that even though he feels the forsakenness of that moment as he became a curse for us and took the wrath of God that you and I deserve because we're the ones that have disobeyed, we're the ones that have sinned. Even though he felt that forsakenness, he was suffering in our place. He knew that there was coming a time where he would speak of the name of God and praise God in the midst of the congregation. In other words, Jesus knew after his death he would be raised and he would proclaim the goodness of God alive from the dead. So the cross and the subsequent resurrection allowed God to win the ultimate victory. When Jesus died, he did not stay dead. Early on Sunday morning, he rose from the grave. He defeated death itself. And the Bible says this is the good news. 1 Corinthians 15. This is the gospel. Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. And early on the third day, he rose according to the scriptures. So the Bible tells us that the death, burial, resurrection of Christ is good news because of what Christ has done You and I can be forgiven and have eternal life.
life. And so he, he speaks here of the effect of the cross. That even though death was coming, resurrection was also coming. And Jesus understood this uh, from uh, the cross. And praise for God's salvation wrought through the cross would move out in concentric circles. It would, it would start from Jesus, verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. Remember, after Jesus rose from the dead, he spent time on the earth, right? Before Pentecost, before he ascended back to the Father, Jesus spent time with his disciples. He was teaching and, and training and proclaiming and preaching and, and pointing them to our great God. So praise would come from Jesus and it would go to Israel. Look what it says in verse 23. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. You offspring of Jacob, that's the Jews. You offspring of Jacob, glorify Him. Stand in awe of Him, all you offspring of Israel. For He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden His face from Him, but has heard when He cried to Him. He's saying there, but because of the cross, because of the resurrection, not only will I praise God on the other side of the resurrection, but my people, the Jews, they will praise God. And this, I believe, is a reference to uh, Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. Holy Spirit fell, Peter got up and preached, and 3,000 people in Jerusalem, probably mostly Jews, were saved on that day. 3,000 people saved in one day. Can you imagine? And he's saying here, praise will come from Jesus. Praise will come to Israel, and praise will go to the nations. Look what it says in verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. He's saying there that, that the, the, the people of God, the Jewish people would praise God. They would be saved by Christ. But the, the gospel would go beyond the Jews to places like Samaria and to uh the uttermost parts of the earth, places like Asia Minor and, and, and Greece and Syria, the gospel would spread. We see that in the book of Acts. And eventually, and I'll just remind you of this, eventually the gospel made it to you. Right? You heard the gospel. Someone shared it. For me, it was F.T. Rogers when I was nine years old. My pastor sat down with me on a summer afternoon at my dining room table, opened his Bible, walked me down the Romans Road. And when I was nine, I heard the gospel. So, so the praise of, 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 of the Lord goes from, from Jesus' lips after the resurrection to the Jews, to the nations, and eventually it came into our lives. And so praise for God's salvation would move out in concentric Circles, And by the way, this is why we do missions. This is why we give to missions and pray for missions. And this morning on uh, the way to, to taking Connor to school, we prayed for the unreached people group of the day. We prayed for a people group in um, Uttar Pradesh, northern India, uh, a people group that of, of over a million people that do not know the Lord. And we prayed for that people group and prayed that, that God would send out laborers and that God would open their hearts to understand the gospel. And we're praying because this Psalm 22 crucifixion, this, this, this scene of Jesus dying on the cross, it reminds us that Jesus died for the world, right? The world. They, people need to hear about God's love for them demonstrated through the cross. So praise for God's salvation would move out in concentric circles and his message of salvation is still going out from God's church today. So we see the
experience of the cross, we see the effect of the cross. Third, very quickly, we see the encouragement of the cross. The encouragement of the cross. The reality of the cross should encourage, first of all, praise. Look in verse 29. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who cannot keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It should be told of the Lord to the coming generation. So that's saying that there's coming a day where everyone will recognize the lordship of Christ. The prosperous, the, 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 the affluent, the lowly, everyone will recognize the authority of King Jesus. It says over in Psalm 2 that every knee will bow, every tongue can, I'm sorry, Philippians 2, that, that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so that praise uh, for Jesus is coming, but, uh, but we need to praise him today. We need to praise him for what he's done. We need to praise him for who he is. We need to praise him for the cross. Praise him for his salvation. Praise him that he died in our place. As I was studying this, it reminded me of a, of a wonderful song called The Beautiful, Terrible Cross. Listen to what these words say. There's a beautiful, terrible cross where though you committed no sin, Savior, you suffered the most wicked fate on the cruelest creation of men. Yet on that beautiful, terrible cross, you did what only you could, turning that dark, inspired evil of hell into our soul's greatest good. We see the love that you showed us. We see the life of life that you lost. We bow and wonder and praise you for the beautiful, terrible cross. There on that beautiful, terrible cross, though darkness was strong on that hill, you remained sovereign, Lord, still in control as your perfect plan was fulfilled. We see the love that you showed us. We see the life that you lost. We bow and wonder and praise you for the beautiful, terrible cross. We should praise Jesus as the one who came to this earth and experienced the cross for us. And also the cross should encourage proclamation. Proclamation. Look in verse 30. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. In other words, in light of the saving power of the cross, we should preach the cross perpetually to the, the, the next generation, to the next generation, to the next generation. We are to tell people the story of the cross. We should proclaim this message. Now, let me tell you what happens. And turn to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2. Let me tell you what happens when you share this message. There are, there are two responses that you're going to get when you talk about the cross. When you share the message that we serve a crucified, risen Savior, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul said the, the centerpiece of my message is that Jesus died on the cross. But back up to chapter 1. And look what it says in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In other words, when we share this message, friends, family, you know, co-workers, whatever the case may be, some people are going to scoff and say, that sounds like the most ridiculous thing I've ever... You are worshiping a, a Jewish 
carpenter who was crucified under the authority of the Roman Empire? That doesn't sound very impressive. You're, you're, you're celebrating the fact that this, this one came and died on the cross? That doesn't sound very awe-inspiring, and people will scoff at the message of the cross. But to us who are being saved, we understand this is the power of God. We couldn't be saved apart from the cross and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. But just understand that when you talk about the cross, some people will scoff. They'll think that message is uh, futile. Uh, And to illustrate this, uh, I remember one time I, I went fishing with my dad. We were fishing out on the Gulf. And um, we had caught some bait fish uh, to use to, to fish with. And we'd put them in the live well, and they were swimming around the live well. Well, I don't think we caught many fish, because when we got back to the dock, we still had a lot of bait fish in there, so we weren't doing real well. And Dad said, hey, throw those fish back in the water. And so if you've ever done this, this is not an easy task, especially as a little guy. And you, 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 you reach in the, the live well, and you're trying to grab these little fish, and pick them up and throw them overboard, right? Not an easy thing. Anybody ever had to do that? Or have you ever had to do that? Not an easy thing to do. Now, to those fish, this dude sticking his hand in there to grab them seemed ridiculous, right? I was trying to save them. I was going to grab them and put them back in their home, right? I, and, but from their perspective, they didn't under. Why are you trying to grab me? This seems dangerous, right? They did not understand. It seemed like a a foolish thing for them to allow themselves to be grasped by my hand and thrown back into the water. And that's how a lot of people deal with the message of the cross. From their perspective, it seems foolish, foolish. But you and I know, and this is our testimony, that it is the power of God unto salvation. Apart from the cross, we cannot be saved. We have no hope of salvation. Jesus had to die to pay the penalty that you and I deserve as ruined sinners. So this is the message we proclaim, but expect when you proclaim it, some people will scoff. But every now and then, every now and then, someone will say, I need a Savior. I believe he died for me. I believe he rose from the grave. And they'll give their life to Jesus. And there's nothing more exciting than seeing someone give their life to Jesus. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's Word. May the Lord richly bless you.